Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. SCP-1461. House of the Worm. People will go to extraordinary measures to protect the things they love, ranging from panicked mothers lifting incredible weights to save their children to soldiers heading off to risk their lives for their countries. In the SCP universe, brave individuals risk their existences on a daily basis to protect our world from strange and unusual anomalies that threaten our entire planet. Typically, we hear these sort of stories from the perspective of the SCP Foundation, but on occasion, other individuals take it upon themselves to get involved with anomalies for the sake of protecting those they love. SCP-1461 is one such story of a man going through incredible yet tragic measures to protect his family, although the end result might not be a happy one. SCP-1461 is an English manor built around 1890, consisting of two floors with 12 bedrooms, four baths, three studies, a main foyer and ballroom, a library, a kitchen, and a pantry basement. Most of these rooms had been converted into a simple barracks, believed to have been used as dwellings for the cult that lived there. The manor came to the Foundation's attention in 1941, when the building and its sublevel facilities all vanished, reappearing 11 days later. A Foundation site has since been built around the manor, and staff have reinforced the structure and are using its space to house monitoring rooms and security. Despite the manor being classified as an SCP, no anomalous activity has ever originated from the manor itself. The real anomaly is underneath the manor, in the attached sublevel facilities. The exact layout and size of these facilities are unknown due to both their anomalous traits as well as the hostile entities located within. The facilities are constructed using concrete, iron, and brass, but also a number of exotic and unknown materials, with the general layout being largely illogical, as doorways open into solid walls or open chasms, and stairwells ascend into empty space. There is also an extensive amount of damage present throughout the facility, with certain sections having caved in with an unidentified grey sandstone that isn't even present on the Foundation's expanded periodic table of elements. Finally, there are also a large number of anomalous objects present throughout the facilities, both active and neutralized. It's unknown whether these objects and the unique layout of the facilities were present before the manor's disappearance or not. Aside from the hostile entities, the facilities are extremely hazardous to traverse due to the extensive array of moving mechanical parts, gear works, pistons, steam pipes, and coolant tubes, all of which lack any appropriate safety measures. 
This machinery is maintained by nozzles that dispense a black, mucus-like substance, which is highly corrosive to organic materials, but functions as both a coolant and lubricant. Some of the sections also appear to be emitting strong gamma and X-ray radiation, despite none of the machinery seeming to house radioactive components. Speaking of the hostile entities, the facilities contain approximately 57 humanoids, including seven former Foundation personnel, which have been augmented with crude mechanical implants through an unknown process. Each of them has been augmented in different ways, most of which possess metallic teeth and claw-like protrusions on their hands, making them quite lethal in close quarters. Other augmentations include iron bolts grafted to their bones in what seems to be random patterns, severe reinforcements to their spinal columns, and replacement of various organs with prosthetics. These entities appear to operate entirely on instinct, possessing canine levels of intelligence, and either stay by themselves or with one other entity. They spend their time building hidden or defensible nests, and attempt to collect food cannibalized from one another or from intruding personnel. Some of the entities have been observed possessing a rather unique augmentation, in which their esophagus and lungs have been replaced with a phonograph device powered by their own movements. These devices emit a constant, repeating stream of speech, of which we've been provided a partial transcript of. I am what you have made me. I am choice, and I am tyranny. Forgive me. I am then, and I am now. What gods they will be, then. I am evil, and I am flesh. I am the trap. I am the trapped. I am beauty, and I am chaos. Children are selfish. I am the worm. I have broken God. The Foundation theorizes that SCP-1461 may command these entities in some way, as a system of tubes throughout the facilities occasionally emits loud metallic shrieking sounds, which causes the entities to retreat from an area. Other times, a metallic odor, identified as matching blood, will manifest through the ventilation systems, which draws the entities to a given area. The frequency and accuracy at which they are specifically drawn to areas occupied by Foundation personnel through this system suggests some sort of guiding intelligence. According to records from when the Foundation discovered the manor, it was owned by a World War I veteran and his family. The man had been injured during the Battle of the Somme, and was sent to a hospital in London shortly before the war's end. This experience seems to have left him with a nihilistic view of society, and he constructed the manor with the intent of somehow escaping from the world or ending it. It's believed that he had anywhere from 50 to 100 employees helping with this task, the majority of which eventually reorganized into a cult devoted to SCP-1461. When the manor vanished, an unknown number of this cult vanished with it, along with the man and his family. Only six of these individuals have been accounted for since then. 
shortly after the matter rematerialized, a number of unknown individuals entered 1461 before the Foundation could contain it. They are believed to be members of the cult that weren't present when it vanished, and they managed to grab a number of anomalous objects from the facilities that have yet to be recovered. The Foundation have so far mapped out only around 75% of the 12 known sublevels underneath the manor, and there is an unknown number of sublevels further below. Each floor contains excavation, construction, and storage rooms, as well as rooms that are either housing anomalous objects or are anomalous themselves. We're given a short list of some of the more unique rooms they've found. One room on sublevel 3 consists of an automated factory that melts down the unidentified gray sandstone into glass, then forms this glass into canisters, and finishes by filling them with a green viscous gel, consisting of a variety of exotic chemicals. Most of these jars have become inert, but some contain fully formed teeth and organs, whose DNA patterns don't match anything else on Earth. The gel production machine itself has since been crushed by a cave-in. On the fourth sublevel is a hallway lined with over 2,000 pipes, constructed from brass, iron, copper, gold, bamboo, jade, and other materials. Some sort of substance can be heard being pumped through these pipes, although the nature of the substance, as well as its origin or destination, is unknown. The seventh sublevel has a large warehouse filled with wooden crates, either unlabeled or marked as factory deliveries. Over time, the number and arrangement of these crates changes, but it's unknown where they are coming from or going. On at least one occasion, muffled voices could be heard coming from somewhere within the warehouse, but the source was never discovered. The 10th sublevel contains something labeled as the Orb Room, but the data about it has been removed. On the 11th sublevel is a room where all of the brass speaking tubes seem to converge onto a large central pulpit. The Foundation recovered the partial remains of a human female there, with evidence to suggest that her body was used to perform crude repairs to some of the damaged tubes. Finally, on the twelfth sublevel is a large chamber filled with a random assembly of gears, cables, pulleys, screws, and belts, all made of an amalgam of metals, some of which are still unidentified. This assembly has suffered extensive damage, with evidence showing that a large section of it was violently removed at some point in the past. There is an elevated platform suspended above the assembly holding a metallic bed, with the desiccated remains of a human male. The chest of this corpse has been pierced by large syringes connected to a pumping machine, with the design suggesting that the pumps extracted fluid from the body and inserted it into the machinery below. Every 45 minutes, the machine attempts to start but the extensive damage prevents it from doing anything other than building heat until it shuts down again. Next to the corpse, a journal was discovered, which provides a great deal more info about what happened here. I'll be reading this verbatim. Day 14 
I think it is important to provide context so future generations may recognize the urgency of my endeavor. In 1916, I enlisted into His Majesty's 5th Infantry Division, and in the bloody trenches of Europe I witnessed proof of humanity's barbarism and the absence of God. Wounded in battle and wallowing in septic mud, the fever fell upon me, and with it came the visions. In my nightmares I saw a great iron worm with jaws like that of a dragon devouring the fields of Europe. It had no teeth, but masses of grinding gears that tore flesh and stone to pulp. Its voice was the roar of falling artillery, its breath the blistering poison of mustard gas. Damned souls were belched into a starless sky like smoke, lost into a cold, indifferent void. I have no memory of my conscious actions during that time, but at last I found myself in a hospital in London. They told me the war was over, but the dreams did not leave. I would wake in a cold sweat, filled with purpose. Hastily, I scribbled down designs that had been burned into my mind, strange and alien architectures I did not recognize or understand. Finally, I returned home to my wife and children. Brave Simon and little Simone were a welcome escape from my fear, but my wife Clarice took notice. Shell shock, she called it, the word on the lips of every veteran's wife or mother. I tried to explain my visions, what instilled such fear in me, but she recoiled as if I were a mere madman. If only that were the case. The children heeded my warnings, however. They were rightly afraid. Yet that was not my intent. No, Simon, do not fear the beast. No, Simone, please do not cry. Father will not let you be fed to the worm. Schematics. They must be the secret to stopping the worm. I feel a connection, a familiarity that likens them unto a great metal snare. With them, I will cage the beast. Day 825. So long, so long in my workshops, so long in the belly of my father's home, free from prying eyes, working, ever building. My wife questions, but refuses to listen. Only the children heed. Only Simon understands. A finer son no father could want. My family's wealth is modest, but the urgency that gives energy to my limbs also guides my thoughts. Through clever accounting, I can take advantage of the working class's desperation. So many seek work, an honest day's wages, that they do not question my motives. Some even show curiosity, enthralled by my designs. A work Leonardo himself would envy, they say. We are more than employer and a laborer. We are a growing congregation, seers who know the truth. With the enlightened to spur the others forward, we make excellent time. They build and forge, dig and reinforce, laying pipes and wrapping conductors in rubber. On the surface, they speak of a great depression, of economic and social despair. Below, I lay the foundation of a greater tomorrow but I smell the burning breath of the worm. 
It is close. We must hurry. Day 2398. I have seen the puppet of the worm. A puffy Austrian who commands power from the desperate, and in their despair they hurl themselves into the grinding teeth of the worm and call themselves masters of a thousand years. I see his face in the newspapers and scream at his empty, hateful eyes, but no one listens. No one sees. The nightmares have changed. Now there are more than mere soldiers on an apostate battlefield. Now there are prisons. Camps of men and women and children, their flesh shriveled by cruelty and neglect. The worm feeds on them, and their souls are so weak they cannot even flee into the heavenless sky. I fear for them, but I fear for my own children even more. In my dreams I hear them crying on the battlefield. They call out for God, for their mother, for their father. Only I can answer. Day 2567 Tonight The vision came I saw the worm Eating the rotten flesh of a dead world The stars had burned out The sun bled into blackness Until the only light was but a flickering candle A torch held against oblivion No Christian god holds that torch No pagan worship No politician or priest I hold the torch. I stand within the snare, built of the iron of the earth and the blood of man, and I bait the worm to its doom. Day 2568. Success! The worm is trapped. Day 2569. My victory was short-sighted. The worm is caged but it has already unleashed its plague upon us. The bombs fall upon London. War rages once more. The worm cries out from below, mocking me even as it thrashes within its cage. This world is doomed. The work crews fear it, or maybe they fear me. Some want to leave, to fight another pointless war for their homeland. Others stand behind me, terrified of what comes for us. How? How? How can we escape this rotting world and the locusts that devour it? Day 2569 I finally understand the purpose of my great machine. Not a cage. An engine. A device that dwarfs all measure of man's science, Satan's magic, and God's miracles. A machine that will deliver us from oblivion. All it needed was a heart, a burning furnace to power it. How ironic that the worm that promised my doom is now the engine that will drive our salvation. The laborers who heeded my warnings have banded with me. Like a cult to its messiah, they gathered at my feet, and as a dutiful shepherd, I will guide them to paradise. Some resisted. I do not hate them. I do not hate the people of this ruined world. I pity them. It was all I could do to instruct my followers that a merciful death is preferable to the alternative. Those who would not come with us were better off sent away by their kin than by some heartless enemy on the battlefield. I go to throw the switch of my great machine and free ourselves from the madness of the grave. 
Day one. In one brilliant flash, my engine and the manor above have been delivered from the war-torn earth to a new world. This place is like our own, but different in many ways. A gray mist swirls around the manor, free of the stink of gunpowder and urban decay. The manor sits in a field of gray soil devoid of vegetation. I hear no buzzing of insects. I see no sun or moon, just a dull, sourceless light. A dismal arrival, perhaps, but a welcome one. I broke wine with my brothers and sisters. Today, we are saved. The engine has gone quiet now. The worm must have been consumed by its own fire. Some merciful part of my soul, so flushed with victory and new hope, prays the worm is at peace. Day 2 Where on earth there would be day and night, here the light never changes. The gray mist lingers, muting all sound. My followers look to me for answers. They say, I am the voice of the engine. Surely I must know what to do. I push for patience and make promises I already begin to doubt myself. To satisfy their curiosity, I asked three of my bravest to venture out in search of... anything. I try to reassure my family, but Clarice looks at me only with fear and hate. She has walled herself up in the bedrooms with Simone. Simon stays with me, though. He wishes to go out to see this new world. I refuse him. I will not threaten his life for the sake of knowledge. Even as I write these words, I am startled by what I see. This world was to be our safe haven, was it not? Day 3 The men I sent into the mist have returned, thanks to the lengths of string I provided them. No vegetation, no animals, no sun or stars, no civilization. This world is empty and gray. Not hell, like the world we left behind. A limbo. Does that make it better? Day 4. The dreams no longer come. Where before I could scarcely close my eyes without envisioning arcane machinery and prophecies of doom, now my mind is empty and the silence mocks me. The food stores are being rationed. I do everything I can to convince the followers that Utopia will come, that this is just a transition, but empty stomachs speak with more conviction than a prophet without a prophecy. A nurse named Eudora seems to have taken it upon herself to stir the hearts of the following, but her sermons cut short as I approach, and she regards me with stony silence until I withdraw. Day 5 my wife refuses to leave the bedrooms. She does not speak to me, ignores the food I leave for her. I call for Simone, but they do not come out. How I have come to hate my wife. Her spite will not save us. Two of the younger followers attempted to steal food from the kitchens. They talk of dwindling food stores, of mistrust, of strange noises coming from below though my great engine no longer turns. If we imprisoned them, the others would have protested. Instead, I go to the others, 
and tell them the young ones have run out into the fog, intend to find answers. Not everyone believes me, including Eudora. Instead, they go back to plotting in quiet. I worry for my flock. Day 6 Now everyone speaks of sounds from below, of rattling pipes and grinding gears, though I assure them the machine has been shut off. To assuage their fears, I sent Danvers and Bertleby to investigate. We should hear back from them sometime later tonight, or morning. No one questioned the fresh meat prepared for dinner. Day 7 My wife is dead. I grew furious at her petulance and pried open the doors with a pickaxe. She had arranged Simone for bed and then... Damn you, Clarice. You rotten whore. I wanted to save my children. Danvers and Burrowby have not come up. The grinding noises come every hour now. Louder and louder. The house shakes around us. I fear the worm may not be as dead as I hoped. Day 8 Darkness has finally fallen, and with it came a terror I have never known, even in the trenches. Cold seeps in through the windows, strange shadows move in the fog, and I hear what sounds like footsteps on the rooftop. The house groans and shakes. The worm struggles. The courage of my followers frays. They want to go home. They want to be free of this horror and this damnable gray purgatory. Day 9. They have taken Simon. Eudora rallied the followers. She declared that the worm spoke to her, to her dreams, and that she is the voice now. The worm demands sacrifice, she said. Son of the man who trapped it. I fought them. I fought. I would not let them take my boy, the only thing I have left. But they were many, and they had gorged on the flesh of their fellows. I was but one broken man. I am no savior, no torch in the darkness, just a puppet to my own madness. I feel that every action I have taken, every vision and design I feverishly scrawled from half-remembered nightmares was forced upon me by a cruel intellect that wished to test the limits of my sanity. They have taken Simon below. They will feed him to the worm. Let this be my prayer to the starless night, to a god that may not even exist. I will not let him be fed to the worm. I will hurl myself into its teeth, that my bones might clog its innards before I let them take my son. I'm sorry, Clarice. Day 10. God, the noise. It is almost deafening. Wheels turn and pistons hiss, and from the deepest reaches I hear a low, mournful bellow. I have brought my journal to give my mind something to focus on as I traverse the machine. Looking upon it with my sane eyes, I realize this maze is no work of logic. The tunnels bend and twist without reason. Stairwells lead to solid walls and doors open to gaping chasms. 
The transference to this gray world may have warped the machine, or maybe I never truly saw it for what it was, and just built according to my deranged whims. I have heard and seen nothing of Simon or his captors. Doubtless their steps are guided by the same madness that has abandoned me, guiding them with fluid ease towards the worm's waiting jaws. I hasten my step, but I seem to be running in blind circles. If nothing else, at least I have a sturdy lantern and plenty of oil from the work crews that toiled down here. Day 11 Day and night are meaningless in this limbo, but down here there is even less to measure the passage of time. My journey has taken me deeper, into some kind of processing factory. These automated devices gather gray sand from the bare rock, heat it into a sickly-looking glass, and fill the created vials with foul-smelling chemicals I cannot identify. Against my better judgment, I crept close to inspect a completed vial, and to my horror, a fully formed set of teeth began to take form. Another jar held an eyeball like nothing found in man or nature. What is the purpose of this factory? What does it build, and for whom? Is this the result of my design, or some mechanical cancer spread by the worm to twist the machine's function? My quarry seems to be in dispute now. I hear them arguing through the ventilation ducts and empty pipes. Eudora has taken my son deeper, leaving the others behind to harass my progress or simply abandoning to the whims of the worm. I have my pickaxe and my training, but I must move with stealth. I have not eaten in nearly two days. Still, Eudora's men still carry strips of meat... I also saw something odd near the lathe room I have hidden myself within. A painting of exquisite taste. It is the work of a master, but I cannot recall when I purchased it, or what possessed me to leave it down here. The image shares a remarkable likeness to Clarice, smiling as though in happier times. It casts my thoughts to decades past, when I was a different man. A smaller man, yet infinitely happier Can knowledge so damn a soul? In a universe of such cosmic evils that I have witnessed, is ignorance truly the only bliss one can enjoy? Day 12 My dreams returned. Not of prophecy, but memory. I am with Simon in the London Museum. He pulls me along, eager to see art and history the beauty of all created by man and God. But I cannot see the beauty. I see only bloody mud and blackened skies, the ugliness of man and a callous God. Simon walks on without me while I sink into a bench. The day fades away to night, and I sit in an empty museum of man's atrocities, the last living thing on a cold earth, overwhelmed by the weight of it all. I wait for death or oblivion to take me, whichever could stomach so pitiful a morsel. But instead I feel the presence of another. I feel no light from this being, no warmth, yet I sense that this was as close to God as any being could be. It looks like a man, but there is a weight to him, as though something greater and stranger were squeezed into his skin. 
The child wants and doesn't know why. The gentleman speaks to me. The child grasps and doesn't know the danger. They burn their fingers and know they are not ready. Someday they will be. Someday they will give voice to the soul and sing with the essence of the universe. What gods they will be then. What galaxies they will weave with dreams and care. But now they are children, and children are selfish. They only know what they want. And then I awoke back inside this machine on a gray planet, so far from the world of my memories. It burdens my bones just to think of the inevitability, but I force myself to stand just the same. Simon cried out to me. I heard him far below. I called back to him, but I heard no reply. Eudora's zealots hound me relentlessly, and I fear some horrible change has come over them in casting their lot with the worm. They speak with slurred, reptilian voices, or gargle as though choking. Some have even turned on their fellows. As I crept about the darkness, I saw one such rebellion. A man I had tried to lead to paradise fell upon his companion in an argument over faith, and I felt the heat of his lifeblood splash across my astonished face. The teeth, gnashing and ripping, so big and sharp like the fangs of a wolf, it also serrated as the blade of a saw. Animal and flesh, yet also machine. My surroundings have been affected by the same mutation. Rooms I do not recognize bleed into one another like spilled paint. An office with plush green chairs merges with a warehouse filled with crates that rattle and bang with some unknown stinking occupant. Ladders descend into pools of viscous liquid that have flooded what appears to be a school. Statues of marble and reliefs of brass decorate the ceilings and form the very walls. Rattling belts spew ammunition into neglected piles. Shells the size of my head clatter to the floor in automated factories, producing the tools of death. I could not have made this. I could not have wanted such devices. And yet here they stand. And always the shrieking tapping of heating and cooling metals, the groan of pressurized hydraulics. I cannot remember what silence sounded like. Day 13 or 14. Eudora's followers no longer heed reason. The demented growl and spit and scavenge for food, their ramblings the stuff of bedlam. Others have become something else. Feral like the lycanthropes of myth. They crawl on all fours, their eyes adjusted to the gloom and shining red, twin pinpoints of demon light. I can startle them with my lantern, but they always return, trying to surround me from all sides. Hunters they are, and fast as wolves, but their howls are the shriek of tearing metal. Eudora's voice taunts me now, It echoes up through the network of plumbing, from every open ventilation shaft. She announces her glorious ascendance, of her devotion to the worm, and I hear true lunacy in her desperate laughter. It ripples through this whole machine, as if she herself is a part of it. 
I have found respite in a room filled with hospital beds and windows that look out into an abyss. It reminds me of the hospital I woke from the war within. But I must pry my eyes away from that dark, for my mind cannot tell if I look into lightless cavern or starless void. Day 15 I have found Eudora. Pursued by her followers made monsters, I came upon a great cathedral made from organ pipes, marble, and the very flesh and bones of Eudora herself. Now I see how she could speak to me through the pipes, for her body has been torn asunder and stitched upon it. Her organs are pulled straight and taut through the tangled plumbing, her skin stretched and inflated with gases, her blood sizzling and steaming from the hydraulics. Only her head remains whole, wide-eyed and cackling, seated on the pulpit of this temple to dementia. The monsters refuse to set foot into this hollowed ground, so I alone approach to speak with her. I demanded my son's return, but she spat her own broken teeth at me and said he had been taken by the worm, delivered to the heart of the machine where its mouth sat waiting. Furious, I fell upon her with a vengeance, tearing what remained of her body from the brass organs around her. She died screaming, and at last was quiet. But then a great bellow erupted from the machine, and a new voice spoke to me through the mangled organ. I am what you have made me. I am then, and I am now. I am choice, and I am tyranny. I am evil, and I am flesh. I am beauty, and I am chaos. I am the worm. Stricken, I fell to the blood-stained floor and wept. I cowered, screaming, not because of the words it spoke, but that they were spoken with my voice. At last, I beheld the truth I had tried to bury so deep. The worm. The machine. The madness that guided my hands. It was me. I am the worm. I do not know what compelled me to stand. I did not feel hope. I didn't feel despair. Like an automaton, I could only move forward to face revelation. When I came upon the core of my great machine, I found my son. The machine was not a weapon to trap the worm. It was not an ark to carry us to salvation. I had sought to exile myself from a monstrous existence, and in my cowardice and fear, I became a monster. I became the worm. I built a shell to hide within, an engine to spirit me away from the pain, the despair that had claimed my sanity to abandon creation and God's cold distance. But it would not run without a catalyst. Simon. So full of hope and faith, so full of love and dreams. How I envied your strength. How I envied your ignorance. I yearned to wrap myself up in that goodness and hide from the world. I threw the switch of my great machine and it drank the heart's blood from your lifeless body, pumping it into every pipe and piston. 
I believed your love would carry us to paradise. But it was tainted by my madness, by my act of murder. I dreamed of peace, and it brought me to unchanging limbo. I demanded paradise, but I deserve only perdition. And I was so horrified by what I had done to you, I could not bear to face it. I spoke as if you were there with me, smiled as though I could see you smiling at me. When Clarice realized what I had done, what I was, she took Simone away before... before I sought her out as well. This place is filled with your memories, Simon. Are they the last tattered shreds of love you have for me? Or are they here to taunt and punish me? as the man-beasts that stalk the hallway surely must be. I do not know if any of you can forgive me. I only know that I promised to save my son. I promised to slay the worm. I leave this journal behind in the hopes that someday, somehow, someone will know what I did and remember the men and women I damned with my selfishness, my fear. I hurl myself into its teeth, that my bones might clog its innards. I am the worm, and Ouroboros must eat itself. So, what exactly happened here? Basically, a man went off to fight in World War I, and ended up becoming injured in battle, where he went into shock and experienced some hallucinations. These visions consisted of a giant metal worm devouring Europe, and when the man returned home, he became obsessed with this worm and the fear of it ending the world. He says that he began writing down schematics for machines that he couldn't understand himself, and set out to build a machine that could somehow cage this worm. He hired a large number of people to build the sublevels underneath his house, a number of which began to follow his beliefs firmly believing that this worm was going to destroy the world, and that this man and his machines were their only hope of survival. His wife, however, was not so convinced. This process took years, and when Hitler came to power, the man was sure that he was a puppet of the worm, who would assist it in destroying the world. He also became convinced that there was no god that could help them out, only himself. 2,568 days after starting the project, he claims to have successfully trapped the worm, but World War II erupts anyways, and he believes that he cannot save the world, and must instead escape from it. He decides that the machine he built is not a cage for the worm, but instead an engine that they can use, powered by the worm, to escape. They activate the machine, and end up in another world, or another dimension, devoid of all life. Initially, they believe that they are in some sort of purgatory, and soon they will be taken to paradise. But as days tick by with dwindling food supplies, the cultists that rallied around him begin to turn on him, led by a nurse named Eudora. The cultists speak of sounds coming from the sublevels, of rattling pipes and grinding gears, but the man is certain the machinery is completely off. 
his wife has holed herself up in a room before apparently killing herself and their daughter while Eudora and the rogue cultists had abducted his son and taken him down below. The man gathers what he can and begins to travel down, avoiding the cultists, some of which have become feral. The man finds rooms that he has no knowledge of building, such as the automated factory, but even he is not sure if their travel to this world created them or if he built them without remembering. He eventually finds Eudora, her body scattered across the brass pipes so that she can speak across the facility. She tells him that his son has been delivered to the heart of the machine, and he proceeds to end her life. He then hears another voice come through the pipes, his own, revealing that he was the one responsible for creating all of this, and also was responsible for sacrificing his son. It seems that he believed that since his son was so full of love, hope, and ignorance, he could power this machine using his blood, which would take them to a world of paradise. He instead says that the machine was tainted by the act of murdering his own son, which brought them to this purgatory. Realizing what he had done caused his mind to snap further, and he had completely forgotten that he had murdered his own son, instead continuing to think that his son was alive. Since he had started this with the goal of slaying the worm, he finishes things by throwing his body into the machine, which causes the manor to teleport back to our world. Afterwards, some individuals entered the manor and fled with a bunch of anomalous objects, including a large section of the primary machine. The cultists inside have been augmented and kept alive through an unknown process, and this process has also been used on lost Foundation personnel. Surprisingly, this SCP has a lot to do with the Church of the Broken God, although it is important to note that there's generally a fair bit of difference between the current idea of the Church and the original idea. When the church was first introduced, it was generally a much darker organization, with more nefarious goals compared to now, where it has a number of positive aspects, such as their stalwart goal of protecting the world from the Sarkic cults. Specifically, this SCP has to do with SCP-882, generally known as the Heart of the Broken God, one of the most important pieces that needs to be combined to reform the Broken God. 882 is a large amalgamation of various machinery parts, around 12 cubic meters in size, that causes auditory hallucinations in people nearby, which is abated only when people throw metal objects into it. The Foundation found that a large section of the primary machine in 1461 was missing, around 12 cubic meters in size and the journal indicates that all of them began to hear louder and louder sounds of machinery coming from the sublevels, despite their insistence that the machine was turned off. The individuals that arrived after the manor returned were definitely members of the church, taking with them some anomalies as well as the heart of the broken god, but that's where things get a little hazy, even according to the author. There's a lot of questions left unanswered about how the man developed these machines, 
whether the cultists that joined him started a branch of the church or were absorbed by one, how the church knew to swoop in after the manor reappeared, and where exactly the manor went when it teleported. With the largely expanded canon we have to work from in the years since this SCP was written, it's a little difficult to accept this as the origin of the Church of the Broken God, but it certainly could be. The big question, of course, then, is what is the worm? Well, it could be easy to assume that the man was right in the end, that he was the worm for doing this to his family and himself, but this is an SCP, and since it ties into the Church of the Broken God, it could be true that he did somehow manage to break a god, turning the worm into the well-known Broken God. Again, this was written years before what we now think of when we hear the Church of the Broken God, so if you're accustomed to the modern tales, you could think of this as an alternate canon. This is definitely a grim story, with the man being quite insane for many years, losing his entire family before realizing exactly what had happened and what he had done. Left with such despair, his final act was to use his own body to clog the machine that he had built. He claims to have broken God, and maybe that's true, but really, he just broke himself. <laughs> 